What is living in lockdown like? As the world tries to make sense of the coronavirus and South Africa's knee-deep in a government-initiated lockdown, we'll be hearing from different voices what they're up to and how they're handling living in the lockdown. Sean Donovan joins us. Sean is someone who's well-known to South Africa's advertising industry. He's someone who headed up TVWA in Johannesburg for a long time and in Africa. And now he's in charge of Asia, which is not only the biggest continent, but at the moment he's in Singapore, which is under a lockdown during the biggest event of 2020, without any doubt. Um, The coronavirus pandemic, which is obviously hitting some places harder than others. So, Sean, first of all, it's really nice to see you. I haven't seen you since you left South Africa. How's Singapore? Yeah, it's very good. Thanks, Gareth. Um, as you said, we're in week six of uh, our lockdown here. Um, we've got another th- uh, two and a half to go, three to go. So it's been quite long. We've had uh, a soft lockdown for about three, four weeks, a hard lockdown then for six. And, and as I said, another just under three to go. But uh, it's good. And, and how has Singapore dealt with this? Because in the beginning, I remember the, the prime minister was uh, putting out videos telling people what you know, COVID-19 was all about and what kinds of measures they should take. And and for a while, I think people really thought Singapore was the leading light in terms of how to deal with and address this this obvious crisis. Yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, I think the, the PM came out really well, understood the need for communication, understood mm-hmm. the, the need for fast action. I guess Singapore, like China, Hong Kong, had the experience of SARS in 2003-04 to draw on as well. So very fast to act, um, no such thing as over-prepared and really went for it. So it was really held up as the poster child how to deal with it, um, exceptional things like contact tracing. So they set up teams to identify people, you know, when there was a case found, whoever was in proximity and dealt with those people and set themselves like two-hour targets to identify those people that were at risk. So they're really, really mm-hmm. good. Then what happened to Singapore was um, it got caught by surprise on imported infections. So Singapore around mid, mid to late March closed its borders effectively to all but returning Singaporeans. But those just returning Singaporeans ended up obviously bringing some infections back into the country. So we went from that stage, I think around about, memory serves me correctly, about 250, 300 cases. to I think today we're on about 23,000. And that, wow. that then led to a harder lockdown. But it's pretty much, I would say, getting under control. Testing has been really extensive. So there is, they've been really good contract tracing at testing. And they've been very good at managing the people that have been tested positive, isolating right. them, setting up areas to accommodate and so forth. And remarkably throughout all those, all there's been 20, 23,000 cases the deaths, thankfully, have been really low. I think uh, as of today, it's sitting at only 21. That's obviously heartbreaking if you're a loved one of those 21. But uh, relative to other countries, they've they've been able to manage quite well. But yeah, it's a good more, lesson more, in letting the guard people, down. More people than that have probably been eaten by crocodiles in Mozambique this week. So uh, that's that's probably a very good number for, for the government of Singapore to be bragging about. And obviously, the the human cost of this We'll only know in the final accounting, and that may be months away. But uh, but every government is doing what they think is best for their people. Now, I'm curious at how, about how this might have affected the the advertising business, and particularly because you know TBWA is this is this monster that isn't just an advertising industry uh, giant anymore. It's also 
a master of, of culture, a master of communications, a master of marketing in various ways, shapes, and forms. So how has the, the coronavirus pandemic affected advertising, marketing? Yeah, like every industry, it's changed significantly. I mean, we exist and we're an extension of our clients' business. Um, and those industries are varied, you know, in this part of the world from financial services to automotive to technology and so forth. I think the one thing I would say, Gareth, is a learning from Asia is that the short answer is we don't know yet. Mm. I think there's probably, and you, you see it in a lot of the commentary, having a very fixed mindset and a fixed point of view of the world in a very fluid environment is probably not a great combination. And I think, you know, it seems like everyone's turned into a futurist and you know there's a lot of heavy opinion there from a very specific point of view i mean there's um there's those two psych you know psychology terms the um black and white syndrome or splitting which is you know we seem to galvanize towards the extremes and then false consensus where we surround ourselves with people that agree with us so we we, we believe in entrenched positions and that they're really right but i think what's what we're seeing in asia is that this is absolutely non-linear we have absolutely no frame of reference to draw on here to try and come up with these hard and fast predictions for the future. And I think, you know, this, the world seems to vacillate between people wanting it to go back to normal, thinking, you know, it will go back to how it was six months ago. And the other half of the world seems to think we're going to have some kind of, you know, massively changed dystopian future. But I think history has shown us that some things will fundamentally change and not go back. Some things will go back to, to a close approximation of what they are. And really, I think from a business point of view right now, it's to try and keep an eye and try and identify which of those changes are systemic and long-term, uh, which are temporary and won't be sustained. And that really, from an advertising point of view, working with our clients is what we're working through. So industries don't know, and we're trying new things. We're trying to identify what will likely be around for a very long time and will change how the advertising world facilitates the, the clients in going to market. I think there's a couple of things that are clearly probably here to stay. One is we've seen a rapid increase in the digital transformation. So if we look around the, the region here, not just Asia, obviously, it's, it's, it's happened sure. everywhere, but we have the benefit of an extra month or so here. But obviously, e-commerce, and not just the growth of e-commerce, but also how e-commerce has changed, how there's different routes to market, the role of influencer marketing, the role of things like this weird amalgamation of soap operas and, and e-commerce channels that, that are emerging. We're seeing brands behaving in a different way. So you had Louis Vuitton, for example, have its first ever live stream event in, in China. And you wouldn't have thought a luxury brand would sell that way previously. So I think we have deep systemic uh, issues in terms of digital transformation change that are, that are very exciting. And I think we have some that are probably less likely and more temporary as well. So we see massive consumption, for example, in screen time. When people were locked yeah. down in China, went from average, I think, about 70 minutes a day to over seven and a half hours. And obviously, content had to be created to fill that. Now, that's not sustainable. We don't have the, the attention to support that going forward. But, but the digital routes to market will change quite significantly. The relationship with brands and how brands have behaved at this point in time, I think, will define... Uh, what uh, consumers will tolerate them from going forward as well. So I think right now there's macro level high trends that we can see go, yeah, they're probably here, here to stay. And the rest, quite frankly, um, we're working through and we'll, um, we'll work with them as they evolve over the next weeks and months. Have people been spending more or less money 
are there some that are spending more and some that are spending less? And have we yet been able to identify since we're what two, almost three months into this new world uh, where it's paid off and where it hasn't? Yeah, there, there definitely is trends emerging, Gareth. Um, obviously, you know, you can see share price, um, Amazon, um, Netflix are reflecting that. Then if you dig into e-commerce itself, actually it's quite interesting is if you look at the growth in e-commerce as a general category, if you look at the top 15 growing categories within it, they're all what could be perceived as like essentials. So foodstuffs, wellness stuff, vitamins, etc. And we're seeing a lot less spend on luxuries. Apparel has regressed significantly. Luggage was the, the biggest declining category, for example. So people are going back to basics. So that's, that's very, very clear. But the interesting thing about what we're seeing here is that for every piece of data, there is almost like a counterpoint. So when people were going back to basics, you're seeing and, and shopping online, as soon as um, China, for example, opens up, you're seeing this phenomenon of revenge shopping happening. So people are going back and the army store, for example, had $3 million in sales yeah. in one day. It's, it's highest ever. So yes, there's definitely patterns that are emerging. And as I said, you know, what we're trying to, to see now is which are going to be sustained and which are temporary. I think it probably should be noted though, Garth, as well, that, you know, the narrative of, you know, Asia's back to business as usual and China specifically has come out the other end. That's, that's very much far from the truth. And I think this is very much a work in progress. So you have the Chinese government, for example, really trying to stimulate the economy. You have recovery coming back as China unlocks, but not at the pace that people had hoped. So we're in for a, a bit of a long run yet, I think. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is so true and resonates with so many people that we just, we don't know yet. And it, it's okay to admit that, but you've got to be ready to adapt to the change as, as it occurs. Uh, what kind of a change was there for you in terms of working in South Africa for, for such a long time and then suddenly finding yourself in Singapore culturally and, and in terms of, of the whole social construction around what, what you do and don't do in Asia? Have you, have you battled to come to terms with that or are you safely and, and firmly in the seat now where you, you, you know exactly what to deal with in terms of people and the, and the way they behave differently? Uh, yeah, good question, Gareth. Um, and I think there's elements of familiarity and there's elements uh, that aren't so familiar. You know, I think the one thing that we know of South Africa is, is you know, it's a massively diverse place. And it's mm. actually a great training ground to deal with lots of diverse people across borders. I think we have a lot of commonalities, actually, between say, South Africa and or Africa in general and Asia. Um, you have, you know, if I take South Africa, you know, you have Santon and you know, five or six Ks away, you have Alex, yeah. you have this massive, as you know, disparity of wealth. And you see the same pan out here, both across the region and also in, in Asian countries, where you have a small amount of very wealthy people living in a, a very developed environment. You have a smaller amount of middle class, and then you have a, a lot of poverty as well. So there's a lot of similarities in that sense. I would think sitting in Singapore is obviously quite different. It's a, a very small island state that's extraordinarily structured and developed, um, as you'll know if you've been here. I think the one thing that has probably been quite stark in terms of a difference uh, and has become apparent during the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic is the relationship with leadership and the trust in institutions of government. So I think you know, China, Singapore, for example, Vietnam, you know, they wouldn't probably have been able to have dealt with the pandemic the way they did 
if they didn't have either high levels of trust in those government entities or high levels of compliance to those government entities. Right. Uh, and there's very marked difference, I think, um, I think in the approach that the South Africans have there. Uh, that's diplomatically put. <laughs> are, you, are you having fun, though? I mean, do, is it a fun place to be? Is, does it feel as exciting as it looks when we see it on travel documentaries and in movies and, and things like that? Because Singapore seems to be this place of, of lights and glamour and glory and excitement and wealth and sophistication. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's a real 21st century place. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think the awe-inspiring thing of Singapore is their ability to plan with a long-term horizon in mind. Um, so mm. all of the things that you you see, that infrastructural development, those buildings, the lights, the glitz, the glam, you know, none of that is accidental. It's all as a result of yeah. long, proper, systemic term planning. Um, I think the founder of the state oh. was an absolute visionary and, mm. you know, has set in motion a series uh, of events, perspectives that really take a long-term view of everything. And I think generally speaking, zooming out into the broader Asia context, I think it's, it's a hugely exciting place. You have obviously a rate of innovation coming out of places like China. So even if you look at how the e-commerce system, ecosystem is structured, uh, is enacted with the rate of you know, development on sort of mobile first technology and so forth, it really is um, a, face, a place that feels alive and kicking and at the bleeding edge of of innovation and development but i wish you luck i know that you're you you have a a, an enormously big responsibility in terms of of connecting people with brands and making messaging work and trying to to enmesh yourself not only in the culture and the society of, of of a totally different place but if there's anyone who can do it it's you and i have no doubt that um that tbwa asia are going to find themselves right on that bleeding edge and, and making sure that they can deliver things that, that no one's done before. It's terrific. It's very exciting. And I'm pleased that we've got a connection there in, in you, Sean. Thanks, Gareth. And all the best with, with the last couple of weeks, hopefully, as you, in your lockdown, as you go yeah. through your various well, levels. You at least have a deadline to work towards. We, we haven't been spoken to by our president in the last two and a half weeks, maybe even three weeks. So we're waiting to hear from him when we'll move to the next level or whether or not this is the way of the future. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. I do think the structure that they put in place in terms of levels and being prepared to regress and progress, I think it's a very mature way of, of, of going about it. I think it's probably something we're just going to have to get used to as a global society yeah. for the for the foreseeable months, at least. I, I, hope, I hope not. I hope it's not something we get used to because this is not the kind of new normal that facilitates ease of business uh, or people's freedoms. So I, I'm hoping not, but let's see. Let's see how it goes. I wouldn't want to be in government right now. Thank you, Sean. All right, Gareth. Thank you. Take care.